in a little letter entitled in your Bible, 1 John, from the third chapter beginning with verse 14 in Peterson's translation. The way we know we have been transferred from death to life is that we love our brothers and sisters. Anyone who doesn't love is as good as dead. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know very well that eternal life and murder don't go together. This is how we've come to understand and experience love. Christ sacrificed his life for us. This is why we ought to live sacrificially for our fellow believers and not just be out for ourselves. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears, and you make it disappear. My dear children, let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. Let's join our hands and hearts together in a loving spirit of concern and prayer for one another. As we do pray, Father, we come now to you, the great God of love, the God of grace, the God of glory. We come, Father, praying that every one of us in this room will feel a fresh touch of your love upon us. In a world that is so characterized today by hatred and verbal violence and rampant accusations and turmoil and trouble, oh God, reincarnate love within your fellowship, within your body, within your church within each one of us, that we might pray for one another, encourage one another, as we do now by holding hands, symbolic of the fact that we know you're holding our hand and we are holding yours. And so we pray for each other, that every one of us in this room will feel a fresh touch of your loving grace upon us today. And we know, dear Lord, that prayers reach far beyond these walls. They reach into hospital rooms, to sick beds, to troubled hearts, to people in difficulty behind bars, wherever they might be. We pray that those in need will hear your voice today, and we reach out through prayer and pray for those that they may be touched like we by your loving spirit today. Lord, without you we can do nothing. So use our words in speech and in song to honor your Son, our Savior, the epitome of love, in whose name we pray. Amen. I want to talk to you and think together with you for a few moments this morning about what God is saying and desires to say through his church, through us, to the world, a world that he loves, and a world for which he died. As Tommy said, and as the scripture relates, God is still speaking. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he spoke through words and actions, words and deeds. The church, as the body of Christ, means that we are to embody him, which means that we are to do exactly in our day, motivated, led, and informed by his spirit, we're to do exactly in our day what he did in his. We're to use both words and deeds to communicate God's incomparable love and grace. Last Sunday, I spoke about what God says to his people, to his followers on the Mount of Olives in the last hours of his earthly sojourn 
Jesus told his disciples, now I want you to be filled with my spirit. I want you to wait till you're filled with the spirit. I don't want you to worry about the future. I want you to be concerned about the present and about what you're going to be doing in the next few days, weeks, and months. And I want you to go back and be filled with the spirit, pray together, and then I want you to start witnessing in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth. Now, you're not ready to do that yet, but I want you to get informed and infilled by my Spirit, and then you're ready to do it. That happened at the day of Pentecost when they were all filled with God's Spirit, all of them, the whole church present, men, women, everybody. They were all there together. Now, numbers of times in these first few chapters of the book of Acts, you will read the phrase, all together, all together, all together, all together. They were all together in prayer. They were all together to be filled by God's Spirit. And they were all together then to be used by God as the church, as the people of God, to speak to the world. Now, the first thing that happened was preaching. The 14th verse of the second chapter of the book of Acts, that's when Peter stood up and backed by the other eleven, spoke out with bold urgency. God speaks through preaching. Preaching was God's idea. It wasn't invented by the church. It was created by God for the church. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, says that he gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers. In other words, he gave a church staff for the purpose of preparing, equipping, and encouraging God's people for their service. Not for the evangelist or the pastor or the teacher's service, but to equip all of God's people for service as the early church was equipped, everyone, by the Spirit of God to be God's witnesses in the world. Preaching, as I said, is God's idea. Paul emphasizes this in his letter to the church at Corinth, first chapter, 18th verse. The message that points to Christ on the cross seems like sheer silliness to those hell-bent on destruction, but for those on the way of salvation, it makes perfect sense. This is the way God works, and most powerfully, as it turns out. It's written, I'll turn conventional wisdom on its head, I'll expose so-called experts as crackpots. So where can you find someone truly wise, truly educated, truly intelligent in this day and age? Hasn't God exposed it all as pretentious nonsense? Since the world and all its fancy wisdom never had a clue when it came to knowing God, God in his wisdom took delight in using what the world considered dumb, preaching of all things. To bring those who trust him into salvation. Preaching is ordered by God. And he uses it for the purpose of calling people to Christ. He has done it for 2,000 years. He is still doing it. Which is why we emphasize so emphatically last Sunday the importance of being in worship. It does not substitute for Sunday school. It's complementary. Because in the preaching of the Word, in the preached Word, in the company of God's people, His Spirit works to the end that people's lives are changed. It may seem dumb, it may seem silly, it may seem foolish, but God ordered it, planned it, and blesses it. 
So that's exactly what Peter did. He stood up and started preaching. Well, let me give you an idea. I'm not going to read his whole sermon, but just let me give you the high points of it. Fellow Israelites, well, let me back up. That's when Peter stood up, backed by the other eleven, spoke out with bold urgency. Fellow Jews, all of you who are visiting Jerusalem, listen carefully and get this story straight. These people aren't drunk, as some of you suspect. They'd accused all these people of being drunk because they were so happy and so excited about what God was doing in their lives. They haven't had time to get drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. He said what's happened is something that was prophesied by the prophet Joel. Then he said, fellow Israelites, listen carefully to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man thoroughly accredited by God to you, the miracles and wonders and signs that God did through him are common knowledge. This Jesus, following the, the deliberate and well-thought-out plan of God, was betrayed by, by men who took the law into their own hands and was handed over to you. And you pinned him to a cross and killed him. But God untied the death ropes and raised him up. Death was no match for him. Cut to the quick, those who were there listening asked Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, brothers, so now what do we do? Peter said, Change your life. Turn to God. Be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so your sins are forgiven. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is targeted to you and your children, but also to all who are far away, whomever, in fact, our Master God invites. He went on in this vein for a long time. Oh, we preachers love to read that phrase. If Simon Peter did it, so can we. He went on in this vein for a long time. Thank you, Simon. God bless you, brother. <laughs> Urging them over and over. I've lost my place. You do, you do know the feeling, don't you? He went on in this vein for a long time, urging them over and over, get out while you can, get out of this sick and stupid culture. That day about 3,000 took him at his word, were baptized, and were signed up. Simon Peter's preaching. If you were a group of preachers, I would spend a good bit of time right now. I'm not going to do that. But I want to give you just a, a couple of words about how to, to determine biblical preaching based on the preaching, not only that Peter did, but the sermons in the New Testament, plus the sermons preached in the first and second century, the, the, what's known as the apostolic age in the early days of the church. There are a couple of things. Number one, the characteristics of biblical preaching, the characteristics of New Testament preaching. Number one, it was arresting preaching. It got your attention. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it's a sin for sermons to be dull. God's Word is intended to reach out and grab us by the spiritual throat to get our attention. Listen to this, Peter said. Listen. Biblical preaching, New Testament preaching, is arresting preaching. It's also adapted preaching. By that I mean it adapts itself to the audience, to the congregation, to the place, to the people who are there. For example, Paul's sermon to the erudite philosophers at Athens, the intellectual capital of the world, was different from his sermon on the streets to the people in Corinth, different from the sermon he preached in the synagogue in Thessalonica. They were different. They were adapted to the needs of those people. They were very culturally aware of who they were, where they were, where they had come from, what they were feeling. 
So preaching ought to be adapted to who and where we are. It ought to be applicable to us. Third quality characteristic of New Testament preaching, it's all Christ-centered. Always Christ-centered. And the fourth characteristic, it always, without exception, requires a verdict. Do something about this. It's either yes or no. It's either I will or I won't. There's no neutral ground when it comes to response to the proclamation of God's Word. Now, there are four emphases within this preaching. Four different words are used that are translated preaching in the New Testament. And, and they are four characteristics of it. Not uh, so much characteristics as, as uh, uh, emphases within the sermon itself. Number one, to warn people. Get right with God. Today is the day of the Lord. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Today is the day. Now is the time. Warn people. Number two, console. Preaching is supposed to console. Not all preaching is supposed to warn. It's also to console. To, in, to speak to those who need consolation, whose hearts are broken, whose homes are torn apart, whose bodies ache. Console. Third emphasis of the New Testament preaching is urgency. Urging people to do what they know they should do and what they know God wants them to do. Paul said, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, we urge people. And then the fourth emphasis of New Testament preaching is encouragement. Encouragement. Notice the balance in preaching in the New Testament. Warning, consolation, urging, and encouragement. Enough of that. What does God now say through preaching and through His Spirit, to the church, and what's the church to say to the world? 40th verse of the second chapter of Acts. They committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles, these 3,000 people who were converted. They committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles. Now hear this stuff. The life together, the common meal, and the prayers. Everyone around was in awe. All those wonders and signs done through the apostles... And all the believers lived in a wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned and pooled their resources so that each person's need was met. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home, every meal a celebration, exuberant and joyful. As they praised God, people liked them. People liked what they saw. Every day, their number grew as God added those who were being saved. Well, the number of clear things that stand out, I want to underline them briefly. They were all together in participation. All together. Everybody was there. All of God's people gathered. Marvelous crowd of people here today as at the early service. But that's not all of us, unfortunately. Some can't be here for illness. Some can't be here because of uh, sorrow of one kind or another. Separation in terms of travel. But some are just not here because they're, not, they're missing the blessing of the fellowship of being together with God's people. All together in participation. A lot of us in this room, my generation I can speak for because that's the only one I've lived in, but the, I grew up in a day when everybody 
It was an age of participation. Everybody participated. Everybody got into the, what was going on. For example, in athletics, uh, I went out for everything in high school. I went out for football, went out for basketball, went out for track. I wasn't any good at any of those things. <laughs> but but I, I met some great people and had some great fun, I, and I got involved in the band and the orchestra. I wasn't any good there either. But it, I tell you what, the, what it did, it gave me an appreciation for what people can do in football or basketball or track and in the band and in the orchestra. When I got in the Marine Corps, I got on a boxing team. As I've told you, I was the only person in the Marine Corps who had to be carried both ways. <laughs> in the ring and out. Boy, was I courageous. Uh, I also uh, got on, of all things, a pool team when we were at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. Um, that sure was better than guard duty. And on this pool team, now I had, I had learned pool, learned to shoot pool in junior high school. My mother just wanted me to do that. <laughs> so I learned to shoot poo. And I believe every young man ought to learn to shoot poo because you never know when times are going to get bad again. <laughs> and you may need another occupation. Uh, ping pong, table tennis. Browning Ware and I, for three and a half years at Baylor University, played doubles and are unbeaten to this day in table tennis. Well, we were pretty good at that. Played golf, good at times, most of the time now pretty bad. The point is, people got involved. If you didn't make it on the team at Woodrow Wilson High School on football, you know what you did? You met everybody up at the corner of La Vista and Gaston. Bob Bushman will remember this. And we'd choose up sides and everybody would play. Everybody play whatever sport was in, in season. Now, I'm all for organized sports and all that sort of thing with adults out there and officials and all that sort of thing. I'm sure that's good. But, but I'm not so sure that, it, that the kids ought not just be left alone and let them get out there and choose up sides and let them learn how to settle arguments and let them learn how to work out their own disputes as to whether you're safe or out. Well, they'll have some words and they may even get in a pushing match every now and then, but they'll learn how to negotiate, they'll learn how to participate, and they'll learn how to be part of a team. Christianity has become a spectator sport because we live in a spectator world. We watch other people. We sit in front of television sets or in stadiums and watch other people, and we do not participate. And what's happening to the, the culture is penalized because of that, and what's happening to Christianity is tragic. Christianity is a participating activity on the part of every single person. Everybody, all together, all together. That's how we'll make a difference. We're working, playing, praying, worshiping, all together. Now, all of you know that I'm a Cowboy fan, and I'm going to be pulling for them this afternoon to beat the Green Bay Packers. But I, and it, there may be a Green Bay Packer fan here. Yeah? You're going to make a wonderful Methodist. Uh, no, listen, we accept anybody. <laughs> Sinners of any shape or size. Best thing about the Packers is their colors are green and gold. Anyway, 
Now, there's some booze up here. This choir's pretty rowdy today, you notice. Now, did you read the article this past week uh, in the Express News? Packers sharper without sharp. You may know the story. I read this with great interest. It says, it's no fluke the Green Bay Packers have gone farther without Sterling Sharp than they ever went with him. Sterling Sharp was an outstanding football player, but it was his attitude that was making a difference, not only for him, but for the whole team, according to people who were there. It's no longer me, me, me in the huddle. Now it's us, 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 said Anthony Morgan, split end, as the Packers prepared for their first NFC title game since 1967. It's an unselfish huddle, agreed Robert Brooks. We don't care who's going to make the play, Brooks said. We just know that somebody's got to make the play, and nobody cares who it's going to be. Just get it done. Now, if they win today, it's because of that kind of attitude. And whether they win today or not, that kind of attitude will always win in life's battles. If we work together, regardless of who gets the credit, us, 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 we'll do it as a church, and as the kingdom of God in this world. Oh, I sat down there last night excited to see the Spurs beat the Magic. You know the Celtics coming to town. They're going to play the Celtics on Tuesday. You may not know this. The Boston Celtics were champions of the NBA 16 times. 16 times they were champions of the NBA, and not one single time during those 16 years did they have the league's leading scorer on their team? Not once. How'd they do it? Teamwork. How'd the early church do it? Teamwork. Working together. Praying together. Serving together. Giving together. Sharing together. Celebrating together. In fact, they celebrated so much that people thought they were drunk. They were a happy bunch. Very few Christians today will ever be accused of being so excited about their faith that they're drunk. People think they're drunk. Some people may think some Christians are just passed out. <laughs> they were happy Christians. I tell you, a mad, sad Christian is a contradiction in terms. If you're always mad about something, don't blame that on Jesus. You made too many enchiladas late at night or something like that. That's what's eating on you. But don't blame a sad, mad disposition on Jesus Christ who came into this world to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. They were a happy bunch. Paul makes a great statement in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 18. He's speaking of three men, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Acacius. And he says of these three fellows, this is all we know about it. He says, they refreshed my spirit. Oh, man, isn't that a great compliment? You want to know why Paul was the person he was? Because he had some refreshers in his life. He had some discouragers, too. He had some Alexander the coppersmith that tried to do him a lot of harm. But you know what kept him going? Stephanus and Fortunatus and Acacius. And you read the last chapter of the book of Romans and you'll read all these names we don't know a thing in the world about and can't pronounce most of them, but they were all there as part of the fellowship to encourage the great apostle 
in what he was doing. They were happy people. They were refreshers. Phillips translates that, they were a tonic to my spirit. Isn't that marvelous? Aren't you glad you know a few Christians like that? That are refreshing Christians, not depressing Christians. Lord, we've got those too. But aren't you glad for some refreshing Christians? Unfortunately, not all Christians are characterized by refreshments. Not all of them. And I know some, that, uh, very few, like I've been talking about, that, that are really, you know, uh, always upset, born in the objective case and constantly object to everything. Uh, very few like that. But, but I do know a lot of good people, fine people, intelligent people, people of integrity, who are just as straight as a telephone pole. And just about as alluring and appealing and exciting. This was a happy bunch of people. Abraham Lincoln said you'll attract a lot more flies with honey than you will with vinegar. And he was talking about preachers. The importance of a positive message of joy in a world that doesn't have any joy and is not founded and will not find it anywhere else. What what is the fruit of the Spirit? Listen to them. Love, joy, and peace. That's the first three. Long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, humility, self-control, marvelous attributes, all capped off with three cherries. Love, joy, and peace. What what an ice cream sundae of delectable spirit-filledness. Love, joy, and peace. Well... The early church made a difference not only because they all participated and all rejoiced, were happy. They were a courageous bunch of folks. They were so afraid at first that they locked themselves behind closed doors. But once they were filled with God's Spirit, these people who had been cowardly and who had left Jesus in the lurch, when they arrested him, it says they all forsook him and fled. They just scattered like winter's withered leaves. They got in that upper room and they were terrified and then God's Spirit came to them and they became bold as lions. And they began to go out door to door, house to house, in the streets talking about Jesus. And they kept going out into the world. All of the original disciples were martyred except John and he was exiled. Well, why did they do that? Because they knew they were going to outlive life. They knew that death had been conquered by Christ and that whatever happened to them was merely inconsequential in the light of the eternal consequences of being with God forever. So they had courage. They were bold. I don't know anything we as a church need more right now as we look and talk and pray about Vision 2000. And we'll be talking about it next Saturday morning. All of you who know you're invited to receive word to be there. As the church looks back upon those 4,000 recommendations we had, the one thing we need more than anything else is a holy boldness born of the Spirit of God. Business as usual will not do it in this century or the next. It will not do it. As you know, I'm a great fan of Arthur Gordon and his book, Touch of Wonder. I read at least once a year, sometimes more. Just pick it up and read it at times. He tells in, in his book 
about an interview he had with a mountain climber, a famous British mountain climber. And this mountain climber said that Arthur Gordon asked him about it. He said, you know, at times, the mountaineer said, I, at times I will get in a situation on the side of a mountain where it is impossible to go in any direction but up. I cannot go back, nor can I move laterally. I can only go in one direction. And the mountaineer then said to Arthur Gordon, I now put myself in that kind of situation intentionally. I will intentionally get in a situation where I cannot go back, I cannot move laterally, the only way to go is up, and he said, I jolly well go up. Friends, it's time Trinity Baptist Church put itself in a position where we cannot go back or just move laterally, but jolly well go up. Up. You turn to the 54th chapter of the book of Isaiah in the second verse, and God says to Isaiah, Enlarge the tent. Enlarge the tent that encompasses the people of God. Enlarge the tent. To do that, you've got to strengthen the ropes. You've got to lengthen the ropes and strengthen the stakes. That's what he says to do. Enlarge the tent. Now to do it, if you've ever been in a tent, if you ever pitched a tent, if you ever lived in a tent like a lot of us have, you're going to make it bigger. You have got to what? Lengthen the ropes. And to lengthen the ropes, you've got to do what correspondingly? Strengthen the stakes or to pull the stakes out. The same thing needs to happen in Trinity Baptist Church starting in the next few weeks to enlarge the tent, lengthen the ropes, strengthen the stakes, and go up jolly well, for that's the only way God wants us to move. And lengthening the tent means that we become inclusive of anybody and everybody, even Green Bay Packer things. We are inclusive of anyone and everyone. No exceptions. The unconditional love of God means the unconditional acceptance of all people by His body, by His church. Fred Craddock is a favorite of all preachers. He teaches homiletics, which is the art of preparation and delivery of sermons, at Emory University. He also teaches New Testament. He was a pastor for many years. He's the man that all preachers listen to. Uh, I listened to his tapes, have heard him in person, just think the world of him. Tremendous man. He tells this story out of his own experience, his own ministry. His first church, when he got out of the seminary back in the early 40s, his first church was in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And Oak Ridge was a sleepy little East Tennessee town of about 20,000 people. And while he was there, in about 1943, it exploded because it became the center for the development of materials and scientific research for atomic bombs. You know the story of Oak Ridge, Tennessee. People began pouring in there from all over the country to go to work. This church that he was pastoring did not like all of those outsiders coming in there. Those foreigners, they called them, from Ohio. Those foreigners from New York, from California. So... The church passed a resolution and made it part of their constitution and bylaws that no one could belong to that church except long-time residents of that county. 
Tick. That wasn't all they said. No motorcycles allowed on our parking lot. And no one allowed in our building who wore a leather jacket or had long hair. Fred Craddock didn't stay there long. He left. Didn't go back for 40 years. And then almost inadvertently, he and his wife were on a trip, and they were fairly close to Oak Ridge, Tennessee. And he said, why don't we take a little detour and go by and see Oak Ridge? We haven't been back for 40 years. See the church. So they did. Town, of course, has exploded in size, like all towns and cities have since then. And the church was where it always was. Same building that he had preached in was there. But there had been some additional buildings added to it. And there were cars on that parking lot from everywhere. Foreigners from everywhere. Foreigners from Kentucky and West Virginia and Ohio and California. Cars. And they had one special area over there reserved for motorcycles. Well, he kept looking for the sign that had designated the church when he was there. And the sign had been removed. There's a new sign there. Bill's Place. The best barbecue in Tennessee. Because of their exclusiveness, they lost their distributorship of the bread of life and they were in the barbecue business, God forbid. I don't believe Jesus Christ called Trinity Baptist Church to be a barbecue joint, hamburger joint. It will be if we don't enlarge the tent, lengthen the ropes, Strengthen the stake and jolly well go up. It will be. I'm no prophet, as Amos said, nor the son of a prophet. But I can know from what church experience, church history experience I've had and have studied that if we stop moving up, to stay where we are is to die. We need parking. We need more staff. We need more ministries. We need more space. We need more vision. We need more togetherness of body, mind, spirit, money, fellowship, celebration, everything. Carl Sandburg, after his classic work on Abraham Lincoln, was asked what he felt was the ugliest word in the English vocabulary. He said without a moment's hesitation, exclusion. Exclusion. We're here to reach out to the whole city, to the whole community, to the whole world, and we'll not do it unless we're all participating together, rejoicing in the Lord together, and courageously serving God together, and reaching out together. For we better jolly well go up. Will you come help us go up? Your coming will help us. We'll help you. We'll do good things together, better things if you're a part of it. Some people joined the church this morning. One who said, I've been coming here for eight years. It's time for me to start participating. I want to join, get involved. Would you do that? Move your membership here if it's not already here. If this is the church where you worship, where you feel like God can use you, and I tell you we can, we'll give every one of you an opportunity out of this Vision 2000. You'll have an opportunity to participate. I promise you we'll give you a choice of where you can participate so that you just don't sit there as a spectator, but you're involved directly in what God is doing here so we can jolly well go up. We need you. If you trusted the Lord as your Savior, 
I invite you, I urge you, I encourage you to give your heart to Christ. Give your life to Him and come to know that joy incomparable that belongs to those who are followers of the great Galilean. I'll be here to receive you as we stand and as we sing our invitation.